0: You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren.
1: All right, so the next topic is Fool Me Once, how crypto can learn from past bull market mistakes and build a lasting legacy. So it's my pleasure to announce... Sheila Warren, CEO of the Crypto Council for Innovation. Yatsui, co-founder and executive chairman of Animoca Brands. Farzar Shirzad, the chief policy officer of Coinbase. And, of course, um, Michael Casey, chief content officer of CoinDesk. Welcome, guys.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you to Casper Labs and to Financial Times for having us here. This is my second time, second rodeo with Casper. I had a great time last year and really looking forward to the 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 rest of this here at Davos. Um, So for those of you who don't know, Sheila and I... Uh, actually good to see a a show of hands anybody here a follower of the money reimagined podcast look at that it's a hey we love you we (laughs) love you we love you we love you you. thank you the rest of you by the end of this we are hoping to convince you're going to be subscribers to the money reimagined podcast that sheila and i've been doing for four years coming almost four years four years now you're better at keeping track than i am um and it's been a fun ride because in four years not much has happened in crypto at all (laughs) uh and and actually, that's a pretty good segue into into the theme of this this conference. So basically, just again, money reimagined. If you want to subscribe, you can find it on CoinDesk. You can obviously find it on Apple and you know wherever you find a podcast. But what we typically do is have a bit of a chit chat beforehand. It's it's a free flowing sort of thing. This is an episode of that podcast, uh, and it, it's it will be you know it'll be it'll be uh, recorded and 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 posted. And then we can invite these guys to come in after that. But I think Sheila like. <laughs> we, we are seeing some green shoots, right? This is fair to yes. say, maybe even more than green shoots, right? With the ETF announcement, uh, which was clearly a big deal. Um, and certainly the market has come back and the mood just feels so much lighter. But um, yeah, you and I have been riding through a, a wild time when it f- seemed to me that we were getting lessons thrown <laughs> at us. You know, w- what is the risk of uh, a, a sort of a custodial exchange and how do in fact you segregate accounts and you know how do you live up to the principles of decentralization and how is it best to actually talk to to regulators and so forth and so we're here really less about sort of berating you know, the guys on the other side of that uh, fence over there and how they need to get religion and and understand. And this is more of a a, a navel-gazing exercise. We're here to, like, look at ourselves a little bit in the mirror and just say, you know, what do we do wrong? So, I mean... Yeah, are we gonna are we gonna get it right this time?
0: <laughs> well, you know what what makes me the most optimistic, honestly, is that you and I have been in, in Davos on the Promenade many times, and so uh, after I moved to the blockchain industry full time, of course, as the head of the founder of the blockchain team at the at the forum, that was uh, the first Davos that I was in that role was 2018, and that was the craziest. If anyone was here, it was just absolutely insanity on the promenade, like everything. It was crypto chalet, crypto ski shots, crypto house, crypto blockchain for everything. You know, I think I did like 47 interviews on the Monday of, of Davos that year, it was wild. Um, and now I come out here and I'm like, okay. So even though we're starting to come back, we're certainly seeing you know, the turn. I agree with you, I think it's more than green shoots. I think it's green shoots that have stickiness and are growing and growing in a visible way, but you aren't seeing the same hype cycle out here. And that gives me hope. Uh, Because what I'm hoping and of course the challenge is what you're seeing is the hype cycle around AI, which is another (laughs) another different challenge. That's not necessarily our problem. But what I'm hoping is that we'll be able to calibrate this and keep it in check and not let like not let the rational optimism turn into irrational exuberance, which I think is part of what caused so many problems last time. Um, But I'd love to, you know, yeah, I mean, you've been OG in the space and around through every single cycle that we've had here. And I kind of want to ask you two different things on this. So one is you know, this is still a very, um, as much as Davos tries to be a very international you know, community and conference, and the forum does a lot to their credit, a lot of effort to cultivate that, this still remains a very Western lens, you know, oriented place. And how do you think that affects this kind of hypiness and frothiness and all of that? And, you know, what do you think we can learn from, from the lessons of the past around trying maybe not to oversell and overextend
1: ourselves in the kind of PR space. Right. But no, thank you for that. I mean, first of all, I'm just curious what uh, Davos was like in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> <I> mean, <it's laughs> right, 2000 right, He's a new relative Year by, like, new, relative company, year, by right? year, it really yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because when you consider <laughs> where Bitcoin and crypto and the whole Web3 space was, actually, that was really, really bad. Yeah. You know, I think at one point Bitcoin hit like $3,000. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, that was like, you know, we're, we're approaching ground zero. And i think when we think of what happened last year it didn't feel quite as bad right even though it was bad for people who entered maybe the year before broadly if you've been in the space you've seen the cycle and you've seen the evolution and you can point back to many more versions of that so i think this is kind of a natural evolution sometimes that happens but what was different i would say is that the extent of fraud really what you have to consider what would our industry look like if we didn't have the fraud that took place right i mean and i think one of the things that's op- i'm optimistic about is that in Sort of this year, I don't really see, you know, knock on wood. I don't see any wood, but imagine <laughs> oh, yeah. there is wood. Um, there's going to be a major black swan event. Mm. Because I think also the fact that there's clarity on the Binance situation, for instance, which I think a lot of people are worried about. Yeah. And of course, the previous stuff out there, I think, gave some clarity. But then talking about Asia, Asia decided to go really actively, particularly Hong Kong and Japan. Uh, and of course, Southeast Asia has really decided to take a leadership position in Web3, actually at the height of when FTX basically was yeah. imploding. They, they went out and said, we're going to basically... Make metaverse a priority. Uh, Hong Kong actually has policies around it. You can actually trade tokens on retail. There's a specific uh, rule around that, and they're giving out licenses. Not to say that they're easy to get, but they basically create a clarity in the market, which I think some other markets around the world would love to have. For instance, um, that's not a hint to you. I think that's. <laughs> but I mean, the point is just that the point is is that I think the lack of the clarity has, has um, given rise, you know, within our portfolio, that people in the U.S. markets, for instance were starting to second guess themselves, right? And this is the problem when you create a market where you have, you know, FUD, right? With the fear and uncertainty and doubt, you're actually beginning to self-censor. You're starting to do things that aren't natural because you're like, can I do this? Can I not do this? Mm-hmm. Distortion. right? It's distortion, right? Yeah. It's actually not creating, you know, transparency in that kind of fair market. Whereas in Asia, they decided to do the opposite thing. Uh, and for a while, people didn't trust it. And then now places like Hong Kong basically have become sort of Web3 digital asset hubs as a result of that and are well primed for that growth. And a lot of people also have joined Web3 in those parts of the world, not because of Bitcoin. So this is, I think, a different uh, scenario as well. A lot of people joined um, the initial wave of digital assets because, oh, I need to own this digital asset because it might go up, because there's value. It's more financial in nature. But in the last two years, NFTs, culture and entertainment have been the primary driver. So in Hong Kong, most people have joined Web3 because of the sandbox initially Mm -hmm. and owning land and getting engaged in the culture side of things which I think is also uh, an element that will help stabilize the market because when people engage in culture, they're not thinking of it in quite the same speculative manner, right? It's like you don't buy a car in the real world to sell tomorrow. Some might, most don't, right? It's like real estate as well. So I think that's happening as well. So people are attached with their identity. They look at it as something that means something to them more. Um, And, you know, I think for most of the world, Culture um, is why you do things, it's for the community. Money is a means to a particular end. But I think crypto had a lot of people that were in there where money was the end, Right? they were there really for pure the, financial the, the NFT
2: sort of boom period, certainly in the US, and this is what's interesting, maybe you, you're seeing, a and I didn't think of it in those terms, as being such a stark distinction between the US and, and Asia. I mean, clearly it seems to me, because I've been a long believer in the power of NFTs for mm. these cultural purposes, Big believer that my own industry media desperately needs to embrace these concepts, but literally always wanted to see it as a utility as opposed to a speculative vehicle. And it was pretty clear that the you know, sea NFT boom period, in some respects, certainly in, in the US, I think what undermined the perception of it in the, mm-hmm. in the outside world, and the, the ability basically to have that serious conversation about how transformative a technology could, it could be was the speculative mania around, you know, the digital rock yes. or, or whatever, right? I agree with that. So was it actually, was
1: it different yeah. in, in Asia? Do you think they No, so I, think, I think what happened was is that when we think of the wave of crypto adoption, most of the people, when we think about 2017, 2018, that was ICO hype, right? 2019 disaster period. Many of the people who, who entered that space were still in the financial aspect. So I like to call it Wall Street crypto. So the motivation of people who went into NFTs were more speculative than for the culture. Because when NFTs became big, that's when it started bringing other people in who were like, oh, what's NFTs? What does it mean to own this? Why? why how does it work in gaming? They really started coming in later in the game. Hmm. Uh, and many of them started coming in really around sort of, let's say, late 2022, 23, which is actually, at least in Asia, which was sort of, you know, peak bear, you could call in recent times. Uh, but they entered the market for different reasons. And you can also see this in the volume of assets that are available to trade as NFTs. So before when NFTs were big uh, in the first cycle, you had uh, something like 50-60% of the collection available for trading. And today it's typically less than 10%, often one or two or 3% because people are holding onto them for different reasons. Also, the thing about NFTs is that if you sell your NFT and it's part of your identity, everyone knows you can't hide that. Oh, you sold it. That means you're kind of like leaving the community. What's the reason behind that? But it's a breakup. It's, it's a breakup. A, it's a breakup. <laughs> um, it, it almost feels like divorce. Yeah. And that's the power of identity. Because you're you attached to, uh, to your identity, to one culture or the other. Then leaving it feels almost like betrayal. But that's also because we're social creatures, right? And I think, you know, look at gaming companies. In the US, many gaming companies can't do NFTs. Not because of the rules, but because the users don't like it. They, mm-hmm. they, they're they worried about the financial speculative aspect. Mm-hmm. In Asia, all the major game companies are talking yeah. about web three blockchain, let's do something. And so it just tells you that there's a, yeah, there's a, a cultural division almost. Um, and
2: uh, maybe, you know, eventually, we meet in the same place. But I don't know, Farah, maybe to, to bring you in here, because, um, you know, yeah, you had said something interesting uh, there about uh, 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 almost like the self-censorship issue that comes from uh, uh, an unfavorable regulatory environment, right? And so the uncertainty around the US. So, you know, to talk less about, and I do want to bring you in and talk about, you know, how do we deal with policymakers, but to maybe flip that around a little bit and think about what has been the impact of the, you know, the great regulatory uncertainty in the United States in the, the way that people behave and comport themselves. Which seemed to me, you know, to Yat's point there, it almost became this restrictive self-censorship. It was not even a law.
3: No, it's a, it's a good question. I, I'm, I'm sort of tempted, though, if you don't mind, if I just start with sort of the broader scene set that Yacht did, in the sense that uh, crypto is a lot of things. The applications that you could use crypto technology with, with are almost unending. Any sort of transmission of ownership, interest, or value could ultimately be tokenized. And so, um, and I think when we think about boom bust cycles, this, that, and the other, NFTs, the hype and the, and the crash. In a way, um, they're obviously consequential for people like us in this room and folks that are listening to this podcast. But From a, from a public policy perspective, it's not that consequential. The fact that people over exuberantly went into a space, over invested, lost their shirts, that happens in any sector, in any industry, over any period of time in history. The area in which crypto applications have been most susceptible to fraud, where the public policy interest has been most pronounced and the consequences from illegal legal law enforcement political perspective are most acute and probably kind of getting to the question you're asking are in crypto intermediation when you have somebody that offers services to intermediate crypto taking your money taking your tokens and custodying them and then using that res- responsibility or authority as the custodian to steal the money misappropriate it, al- facilitate illicit finance all those sorts of things that we've seen i think is where the big sea change has been over the last couple of years i think the tolerance I think the sophistication of governments, the development of the rule set, and the uh, conversance of regulators in terms of being able to ask the right questions and set out expectation is a sea change from a couple of years ago and even from last year. So if you're intermediating in crypto, if you're taking people's money, um, uh, purporting to store it uh, or facilitate activity, that's been a game change. So whatever the mood is on the promenade in Davos in a way that is sort of a potentially a misleading indicator from what the real i think more relevant indicator is which is the one that we see as an intermediary going into any market and the expectation that regulators have i think the
2: progress so just on that though so, so ftx uh uh you know um the the, the full cast of that of that's right of lost them so they're just they were an anomaly they were they were part of the they were the last wave if you like of a of a poorly regulated and uh, you know, I think bad practices. the scale of FTX and the scale of Binance is
3: such that it's hard to see anything else that any other intermediary of that scale uh, that seems to be a risk factor of that magnitude. And so when you kind of look at where the future is, I think that's a factor. Again, I'm not predicting what will happen, but I just I just. You just don't see it in the same way and what's most of the g20 yeah we will
1: not
2: see another sort of
1: un, under-regulated, uh, FTX. <laughs> well, maybe, well stable
2: it, coins could
3: be that
1: i mean way. i just wanted to maybe yeah. just add one point which is that um when you think about what happened with the ico waves frankly and sadly a lot of people got away so yeah, i totally agree with that. and so what happens yeah. is that you have a sort of a narrative of you know bad people in the space saying oh we can do stuff yep. right mm. whereas in Twenty two, twenty three. 23, they, you know, they couldn't get away. That's and I is. think that is a, a real change where people yep. go, wait, I, you know, this isn't a space anymore where you can operate that. And I think also externally, you know, when I talk to sort of, you know, on an anecdotal basis, people feel like they're not sort of above or away from the law, as it were you get caught and there are consequences. Yes. And I think this is now in people's minds. And so whether you're an entrepreneur, you're basically, if you're thinking about, you know, maybe being tempted to do something, you're like, wait a second, I don't want to end like this guy, I've heard about that story, which is basically what happens when you have crime and punishment, right? And the whole point about that is to show what happens when you do something bad. Yep. And for a long time, they got away and now they don't. And I think that's also a very big difference. You know, I think of 23 as like that cleanup year. Yeah, I totally. couldn't agree more. I think yeah. the deterrent
0: value of that is so high. And of course, it's important to note that you know, the laws to the extent they were laws under which some of these folks were caught pre-existed anything. It's not because they were under new rules that came into play. It's that people just thought they could ignore morality, frankly, and just being a basic decent human being to other people. And so I do think it's sort of easy to say, you know, people lost money and that happens all the time. But it was a little different, I think, in our space because people were taking advantage of the intensity of the fact that the last time we had a big wave of this kind of, you know, a thing, we didn't have the Internet. So you didn't have the democratization of the information; where people could just kind of go in and have access to some of these ICOs and other things without really understanding what was behind that. And you had people who were more than happy to take advantage of it. So, but I think I think you're right that a lot of folks who engaged in that kind of shady behavior did get away with it. And it is where, to your point, where the intermediaries came into play; those folks were caught, but they were caught on rules already on the books. That's right, right on the hundred percent. So, yeah,
3: no, exactly. I think the I think the Shula, uh, you make a really important point because. In a way, the develop, the significant advances we've seen in regulation across the G20 um, in a way are as significant in terms of what they mean for governments, because now you have regulators exactly. who built the capacity, right. that's the right. expertise, the that's surveillance right. mechanisms, uh, and then the accountability, frankly, in their domestic systems, because there's a law now on the books to look at this sector. So they, they couldn't say it's sure. not my issue. Yep. And that's what the irony is, Michael, to your question in the United States. I mean, there's a perfect opportunity with FTX, for U.S. policymakers in Congress to develop a consistent federal framework around crypto trading, commodities, securities, and just and resolve that issue once and for all in terms of having a consistent um, rule set. And you know, for reasons that we can all talk about, that hasn't yet happened. Right. Although I do think there's been important, and I think the fact that we've gotten good bipartisan legislation um, out of two committees is not an inconsequential thing. The fact that we'll likely see
2: a bill pass out of the house is a pretty big deal and then what happens after that we'll see so i mean one of the factors it would seem to me is just like you know my, my, my sort of monday back quarterbacking on this whole thing because <laughs> i'm not as involved in the policy making part nearly as much as you guys but that you know that sbf did an enormous amount of harm in the capacity to actually win over the policy makers the legislators that you needed to make change partly because he you know spread his largesse throughout Congress. <laughs> and then when everything you know turned out to be egg it's on their face, the it. last thing they want to do is look like they're supporting that. And unfortunately, it meant that a number of people were able to then tarnish the whole thing with the same brush, right? So, you know, in a way, it felt to me as if to an extent, crypto was being punished for the crimes of Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, but at the same time, clearly there is a trust challenge. And, and you know, there's no organization that has been more upfront, I would say, as a company than Coinbase in sort of taking the fight to these guys, right? You, you know, the stand with crypto position that you take. And there's an argument that says, you know, you perhaps should be a little bit more accommodating here. You should be a more, you know, compromising and looking for a friendly approach. But I mean, looking at Brian and, you know, some of his tweets he's coming out with at the moment, and it's a very feisty approach you're taking. So how do you reconcile that with the idea of trying to win trust with, with Democrats, for example? Yeah, I mean,
3: I think we see ourselves as actually being quite accommodating. I mean, we're very agnostic ultimately about what the federal framework around crypto trading looks like. I mean, there's certain principles you obviously want to see, but I don't think we've taken a hard line in that sense. What we found, though, which I think ultimately animated the actions that we've taken is that there are 52 million Americans who own crypto in the United States. That's more people than have union cards, more people than own an electric vehicle. At the moment, they have no say in the American political process. They're completely ignored by policymakers uh, when decisions are being made about what to do about crypto, uh, about crypto uh, policy or crypto legislation. And I think a lot of it is because I think the administration has largely ceded crypto to Elizabeth Warren and they just don't want to deal with it. And I think we ultimately had a strategic decision that we kind of confronted in the summer of last year, which was, do we allow all these people to be ignored or do we try to do what we can to kind of bring them into the debate? And so we did two things. One is we helped start an organization called Stand With Crypto. It's intended to be a grassroots organization. It's independent of Coinbase. We funded it, we support it, uh, but it operates as an independent entity. We have had 200,000 Americans sign up as crypto advocates uh, to essentially make their voices heard. Many of them are coming to Washington. Many of them are hosting events. Uh, in, uh, in, in the states, um, in districts, meeting with members of Congress, their impact has been transformational. It's very hard for any member of Congress who's learning about crypto to look at a, a bunch of uh, innovators, developers in their own district, in their own state, and not ultimately re- recognize that there's something here that they want to incubate. And then the other thing has been to be involved with Fairshake to uh, set up a larger political funding operation, which we've done as well. The goal of all of this is to simply bring those people into the debate. And then I think the ultimate outcome is something that, uh, you know, I think there's large bipartisan consensus on. And we think we'll be able to get there. Is there
2: not a risk so that, you know, the 200,000, you know, folks, all of them, are obviously passionate believers in this? But it self-selects towards a certain sort of extrema position, right? I mean, there's a you know, it feels like it's a a broad rainbow coalition of of yeah.
3: I mean we I mean uh, CCI has polled crypto owner uh, population, the crypto voters we call them. They skew young, they skew black and brown. They actually skewed marginally uh, more towards Biden voters. They've actually, as uh, Sheila's uh, data has shown, are actually willing to split the ticket between uh, Democrat and Republican depending on on the candidate's views on the issue. So this isn't some sort of fringe part of the uh, population. Mm -hmm. This is the American people, and it's particularly a population that the Biden uh, team is very interested in uh, for their reelect. And so part of what we are, the message that we're trying to send is, look, there's a lot of American people who are interested in how you handle these things. Let's pay attention to them and let's make them part of the debate. And by the way, these are the kind of constituents that will ultimately be potentially Dispositive in uh, the swing states in which uh, several hundred votes, several thousand votes ultimately will determine the outcome.
1: Yeah. Go ahead. yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about crypto is just actually, I think it's probably one of the more aligned things to American values, actually, fundamentally speaking. Absolutely. Uh, and somehow that part hasn't been communicated. I also think it's unlikely that the U.S. ultimately is wanting to cede any aspect of technology leadership, no matter where it is in the world, historically has never been true. So therefore I don't think it's going to be true in the future. I think it's a political narrative for the time people, the time being really, I think it's being election year and everything, where people are sort of driving that narrative of sort of, you know, being anti-crypto, particularly for the Democratic Party, because maybe they think it's a it's a good campaign platform. But you know, the, the crazy thing is, is that even China is talking about Web3 is the future and there's blockchain technology. And so I don't believe that they're going to be letting that see because it's it's just something that just doesn't seem likely. But one other thing I have observed, and this is more on the NFT gaming side, is that unlike in Asia, American gamers do not like NFTs, and uh, and they fear an overfinancification. Hmm. They fear essentially the introduction of capitalism in games, in the sense that they think that the one idea, the one place where I can have sort of a meritocratic experience in terms of my social status in gaming is I don't have to pay my way for it, right? The majority of gamers don't pay. Only a small number do. And remember, if you buy something in a game that's made by a Western game yeah. designer, you don't get an advantage. That's you can buy a nice. skin, they can look good, yep. right? You know, a hundred billion dollars are spent on, yeah. you know, virtual fashion essentially in, uh, in in video games, which they don't own, which is kind of crazy, right? Yeah. Um, and 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 so in Asia though, for instance, it's okay to pay for game items that might give you an advantage, or you can look mm-hmm. better, or it elevates your social status. So I think there is something about America, which I think is also affecting its political narrative around what I never saw before, which was, and this, I only got to appreciate this after I was stuck in the US for COVID, because Hong Kong, <laughs> Hong Kong, Hong Kong <laughs> so did not let me go back. <laughs> so uh, uh, so
0: it's is, it
1: is because uh, there was this sort of uh, anti-capitalist narrative that is developing by with a certain subset of young Americans. Uh, which is something that would have been unbelievable for me <laughs> right. outside it's until right. I was there. And I was sort of uh, yeah, sort of living it. and experiencing mm-hmm. it. Um, and I think this is probably one of the other areas that I think is afflicting maybe the West even, which is that, you know, crypto is digital capitalism, right? It's kind of this view of it's, it's a Wall Street game, even though that's not true, right? I mean, yeah. actually, digital assets, digital property rights and crypto actually are probably the most democratically accessible... Totally yeah. Asset that anyone can participate in, but that's not understood. And maybe on the communication side, we need to do a better job in telling people that actually this is more inclusive. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not when Lambo, right? That's the reputation that it the industry unfortunately has. In the same way that, you know, people had that reputation pre-Leman as well, in terms of people in the banking industry. Um and so I think there's PR, I think, that's needed. Um, more than uh, on top of the advocacy work, mm-hmm. particularly with that young voter base you're talking about, because they're turned off by capitalism. It's been feudal to them. It's been bad to them. You know, and there's so much talk about how capitalism is essentially or like, you know, a new form of, you know, manorialism um, and, and everything that's around that. So yeah, just absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, yeah. so I think, mm-hmm. and in the platforms as well. I mean, all the platforms today in Web2 are rent seekers, basically, mm-hmm. right? You don't actually own anything, mm-hmm. whether you're on Facebook or whether you're on, whether you're on Amazon, just for the right to exist on these platforms, you're basically paying a fee. And now we've gotten used to that somehow. And I think if we can twist that conversation back around to say, actually, you know, this is something that you own and Mm -hmm. it's back to the original principle of property rights and basis foundation. Uh, maybe we can win those people over mm. who've gotten lost in, you know, I sometimes joke about this, but it's kind of true. I think the American dream is more alive and well in Asia mm. than it is in America. I mean, you're not the getting one that to impression it. it's so true. That,
0: yeah. I mean, so I wrote this uh, op-ed on uh, with Justin Slaughter, um, uh, Paradigm Capital, that was about exactly this topic, that crypto is actually, at it, its heart, it is the most progressive innovation that we've seen in an extremely long time. And this to me is an extremely obvious point. It's why I got into the space in the first place, but you're right. And I have to say, I do think the reality of sort of the American cowboy sort of you know thing that you see particularly on social media or whatnot, which does get a lot of traction in Washington you know for better or for worse uh is very different from that it's a very different sense of this and then the challenge I think is and part of what you know, the efforts that fire and others are, are putting effort into um is trying to to create a different model for that and to say it is not yes there is that feel there is that very you know super libertarian kind of underpinnings to this but Ironically, that has a lot in common with a very progressive model as well. And it's not as different as you would think. Uh, And that is something that people still have a hard time getting their heads around as a general matter, let alone within our space.
3: Yeah, I think to some extent, I mean, politically, a lot of our advocates just simply organized around getting a hearing. Because as you said, (laughs) I was listening to Rohit Chopra, who's the head of the CFPB, give a really thoughtful interview. This was about six months ago. And he kind of went through all his concerns about excessive concentration in the tech sector, uh, large uh, tech intermediaries the, <laughs> the, like if um,
0: only there were uh, a, you know, the like... aggregation
3: of data <laughs> the privacy implication the monetization the lack of sort of distribution of the revenue and the wealth that's generated to the actual you know people who provide all that information and every bit of it was consistent with our value proposition that crypto brings to the table but politics is politics in the end sometimes yep. just even having a conversation on the merits is hard and I think to what to the extent that we can through different mechanisms, advocacy included, just simply get a hearing. I think our case is a really powerful one. And
1: yeah. I would also add, though, that the American narrative from an outsider perspective, you know, we used to, as I guess, you know, in this case, Asian immigrants look at America as a place of hope. Everything about the American message was hope and opportunity. And over the last, I would say, five or ten years, the political messaging is quite the opposite. It's more about, you know, fear and mm-hmm. angst and all these struggling things. and. That so 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 you don't look at it quite the same way, um, and maybe you know there's some element where I, I think people are more naturally attuned to want to see a hopeful message. So maybe if we can sort of create campaigns or discuss around the opportunity in a hopeful manner, because mm-hmm. even when in and, and I see this more with our American investments, they play defense a lot, and so when they play defense, they're not actually going out saying well this is what's good for the community. They're more like. Sort of you know dodging bullets and sort yeah. of dealing with lawyers and do all this so they're inundated with being on attack so they're unable to actually spend time thinking about the broader message that because yeah. they don't have the s- space for it because they're constantly under threat it,
2: it seems to me like what's lacking often is a demonstration effect right we can all sit here and talk theoretically and it's not i think it's more than theory i mean there are clearly are practical applications of crypto and blockchain that are just achieving what it, what it sets out to achieve but it's, it's not as so obvious to the average person, right? And I think it's been interesting actually here with the whole AI conversation, people, oh, AI is gonna be it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I actually thoroughly believe that it's a marriage made in heaven, that you know, in fact, we desperately need you know, some sort of decentralized provenance solution to resolve the challenge of data and AI. However, it actually fits back to what you're saying. It's the fear factor that's driving that, right? It's like, oh, good, something to save us again. It's gonna fix a problem. One of the reasons I was always enthusiastic about Web3 and NFT and things like gaming is it felt like you could demonstrate this sort of participatory fun element of it. And I think the fact you focus on digital property rights is really interesting because property rights, if you look through history, at any given moment that a property right has been actually extended to a new class of human Mm -hmm. being. In fact, China, I've often thought that when Deng Xiaoping actually let people own their homes in China, it was a huge factor in that. So the idea that you sort of spread... Uh, not just wealth, but ownership and the capacity to use it—such a powerful idea. But I suppose my question to both of you, like, is, is and to you as well, Sheila. Like, what are the use cases? What are the things that we should be bringing to the table to show to people? Look, this is not only going to resolve a challenge—you know, make you feel like you're, you know, in charge again—but actually is constructive and fun, and you can build wealth and, mm-hmm. and be a part mm-hmm. of this. Otherwise, you know. I mean, I
1: think from our perspective, (laughs) you know, I mean, this is a topic we love to focus (laughs) on right? gaming and sort of. But I think, you know, property rights for people who um, might not remember, South Korea 40 years ago had a lower GDP than North Korea. Mm -hmm. Right. But they introduced property rights, capitalism, all that type of stuff. And now it's like number 12 and number 13 most wealthiest country in the world, for instance, Uh, at a place that doesn't even have natural resources. It was actually really just intellectual property rights, if you think about it. Right. But there's K-Drama, K-pop, you know, Samsung, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and this, and I think just quickly, I think on Asia, that's one of the reasons why most people in Asia are, have become pro-crypto, pro-NFTs, because they've existed in a time, my parents existed in a time where they had no property rights. So we remember that time where I think the West takes it for granted. Right? They don't necessarily, sometimes the arguments I have with some people around property rights is like, but I own my house because I live in it. No, you don't own your house because you live in it. There's a <laughs> provenance that's attached to it because you have a stable government, that's why you have it. Yeah. But in other places where the government isn't stable, Doesn't care that you're physically in this place, you you would lose it, right? And I think I think that there's a little bit of of that knowledge. But I think on the fun side, gaming I think is going to be one of the key drivers that will onboard people into web three. Hundred percent. Because there's three point four billion people who play games and they all already think they own their digital assets, even they, do, <laughs> yep. they don't, right? Yeah. I mean, you ask your kids yeah. when they buy their stuff on Roblox, yeah. and they say, you know, you just rented it like you went to go to the it's in a prom, and you know, like a tux rental? No, that's, <laughs> that's not it. You actually, they believe that they've actually owned it, yes, they actually own it, but do. they don't, right? And then the network effects that come from property rights are attached to it. And I think one thing that we don't spend enough time on is that, you know, culture is the deepest economic sink of everything. In crypto terms, I would say culture is the deepest TVL. Right? Because when you spend money in culture, you right. don't spend it out because right. it's part of you. Right. Right? How much are we spending on a clothes? If we all were just wearing clothes for utility, we'd all be wearing the same clothes right? <laughs> and the same shoes and we're driving mm-hmm. the same cars, mm-hmm. but we don't. We like it because it's red or it's fast or it says something and people don't buy Rolex to tell the time. They don't buy Birkin bags to put stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Right? These are all part of our identity and that's already expressed in gaming today. Uh, and moving that, which is essentially a rental asset, mm. right? into a property right asset, you basically will have capital formation that you see in nation states. So we think gaming in itself will become a trillion dollar industry. Yeah. But the one thing I'll close, and then obviously some other thoughts from, from everyone else is, that gaming unfortunately isn't a strong political narrative. Mm-hmm. So you can't win an election to yeah. say, we're gonna bring- Save the gamers. Yeah, <laughs> we we'll us save the gamers, right? You know, because <laughs> mom and dad doesn't like the kids playing games, <laughs> right? right. Um, so I think we need to bring other communities into the space as well, who are, you know, if you want to talk about agendas, right? How we bring those people in that actually mm-hmm. people can appreciate. And so one of the use cases for NFTs that we've done is for teachers, where because NFTs aren't just like digital items. These are things that could be used, and you turn anything into a capital asset, Right, like a, like a music royalty so teachers make content that content basically gets turned into sort of a capital asset because it makes maybe even just 10 or 50 or 100 dollars yield someone can buy that right and then now they you know will pay 500 or a thousand dollars for it because they're happy to take a 10 or 20 percent yield it's finance. it's a financial instrument but actually what happens is, is that you're including now a totally different universe of people um teachers and educators and content creators that affect everyone in society that you broadly want to do better into that space as well right and so that's what companies like Open Campus and TinyTap are trying to do. Um, it's not a cool concept because, you know, learning and teaching just isn't cool. I get it. But it's a narrative that I think that will help us on the political scale because it's tough to say teachers shouldn't make more money. Mm. Right. And actually, they are a political lobby. And I think, this, mm. by the way, this, I think there's different industries out there. Because if you remember when NFTs got really big, originally through art, people still felt excluded because art was kind of felt a little bit like this sort of. Sort of you know like sort of hofty, one yeah, percentile yeah. thing. Christie's and yeah, yeah. Sotheby's was exactly. Was yeah, and and right. even though NFT art made was more inclusive and brought more people in, for people outside of the circle, they still had the sort of Sotheby's impression of art, mm-hmm. right? And so I think again, we I think if we enter the kind of spaces where we can all you know, broadly more empathize with, I think will win more people over.
2: I mean, Coinbase puts a lot of effort in trying to sort of speak to the general public. I mean, you yeah. almost feel like you're the, you're the public spokesperson to get the public on board. Like, where do you see the efforts that need to go to, to, to get people excited? I would say uh, two things. One is there's a general, and we've polled this
3: and we see it quite vividly. And I think all of us recognize it just from in, in the United States, for sure, in terms of kind of in our, you know, dinner table conversation, there's just this, sense of disaffection that people have about the financial system and the degree to which it serves their interests. There's a broad base and we we capture it through ads that we've started doing about updating the system. People just feel that the system hasn't been responsive to them. And the democratizing aspect of crypto, I think, is quite formidable. How that manifests is in a multitude of different ways, but it ultimately makes a rigid, centralized, highly controlled financial system. And takes the frictions out of it and takes the and puts the controls back into the individual. I think in a more sort of direct answer on your previous question, in terms of what the use case, Brian Armstrong talks about when he first got into crypto 10 years ago, he was convinced the first use case was gonna be payments. And I think what we've seen largely over the last 10 years has been crypto as a speculative trading asset. I think that's been the heavy, heavy sort of dominant impression that people have. I think we're entering now into the actual payments f- phase You're seeing it both in terms of remittance products that people are using um, through crypto. And you're also seeing it in things like Visa's announcement that they're integrating stablecoin-based settlement into their payment system. Um, And then you're seeing it in terms of the adoption of either digitized or central bank digital currency or the enablement and the creating the regulatory room for people to use tokenized currencies uh, in commerce in a a number of different jurisdictions. So I was down in Brazil, I don't know, two months ago, for example, talking to the central banks. They're engaged in a broad process of tokenizing the entire economy, tokenizing the financial system, the banking system and real world assets. I think that is the trend line uh, that we're going to see. And then the last point is that there's a significant move now towards whether you have smart appliances things like that where there's a need to facilitate microtransactions those can't be facilitated under normal um uh credit card rails for example um token uh and and uh blockchain based uh solutions are ultimately the answer to allow for the micro so that your refrigerator goes and orders your uh, gallon of milk that you need in your house. And I think we'll see a lot of that. Well, yeah, it's, yeah. Been, it's been a lot and of talk think, with that. Why don't you close it out? Yeah,
0: sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, I actually think that the over-financialization of the discussion has, has put us in a box and it's been really problematic box. And I think one of the reasons some jurisdictions have been able to escape that, both in terms of the build innovation you're seeing is cultural. These things were just kind of handled earlier. Right. So in Switzerland, Japan, Hong Kong, it's like, oh, yeah, there's an aspect of this that kind of looks like money. We'll say we'll say some things about it and put some guardrails and then everyone move on with their lives. And in the U.S., we're just stuck in that conversation. We're stuck. It's like yeah. a spin that never ends. And so I actually think that the advent I, mean, I got into the space because of the data capture in Web2 companies and having a huge issue with that, you know, personally, professionally, in all kinds of ways, uh, ethically, I would say. Um, and so seeing the advent of a lot of applications, if you will, that are kind of really focused in that space is helping shift the conversations. I went eight months ago to a senator's office, not Liz Warren, but a different one who is very, very virulently anti-crypto and, and talked about Web3 and AI. And I was almost laughed out of the office. It's like, what are you talking about? This is only about speculation and money and that's not even real. And I was like, oh, here are a dozen academic papers that give the lie to what you just said. They don't want to hear it. Right. So now I, we were like, let's go back and see if that isn't some, there's some traction there. So we went back again, and it's like, oh, well, now the AI is this thing. It's like oh, there's relevance of Web3 technologies to AI. And it's like, yes. Here is the forwarded email from eight months ago with the dozen academic papers and here are a dozen more, you know, so it's kind of catching people when they're ready. But again, my my hope is that as more of these sorts of uh, products and and engagement models and uh, opportunities, I realize how I'd frame them in the most broad sense, become more mainstream and understood, there will be more recognition. This is not just about financial services. It's about a much bigger opportunity space. And locking us into that conversation is sort of, it's important, but it's also Missing, you know, the entirety of what we're what this is actually going to yeah, accomplish totally over totally over agree.
2: time. All right, so we are at time. I don't think we have time for questions, unfortunately. <laughs> Though I do love that spirit of that. Yes, know? we love <laughs> it. So, <laughs> we <laughs> <should> <laughs> guys, yeah, yeah. So, and, yes. and, and as I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna exploit the the, the generosity of Casper and, and Tita <laughs> to, to give another shameless plug for Money Reimagined, the podcast. That we do yes, with. please subscribe to it. <laughs> A, yeah. a round of applause yeah. for Fario Shuzad for Yesu Thank my you. co-host of yeah. the Money Region, Sheila Warren. I actually have the pleasure now of, of using another shameless plug because <laughs> I'm going to invite my friend and co-author Frank McCourt onto the stage to talk about a book that we have written together that's coming out. And it deals a lot with what Yesu was talking about, about how do we actually empower people to own what is rightfully theirs in the digital age and transform this broken tenet that we're world here. <laughs> <laughs>